All right. Well, um, of course, we are uh, going to continue this um, series on Bible interpretation. And uh, our last meeting, we finished up looking through uh, or going through the various covenants, um, the, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, well, all the, all the covenants in the Old Testament, and then um, climaxing with the, uh, the New Covenant. And uh, we begin there because we always, again, as I, as I stated before, we always need to keep these covenants in mind and the sort of the larger plan of salvation, the, the story of redemption in mind Whenever we're um, reading any passage of Scripture, we need to understand first where we are in it, right? We need to understand, you know, what covenant is in place and in effect for God's people when we're reading from the law, when we're reading from Leviticus. And um, we'll be getting into, of course, uh, the Psalms in, in a couple of weeks. And, of course, the new covenant has not yet come there, though, even in the Psalms, that, that is um, the, the promise of the Messiah is, is spoken of. Um, so we always need to have that larger framework in mind, right? That's just sort of always in the back of our mind. Um, we're moving now into sort of a, a, a new phase this week um, where we're going to start looking in particular at reading different genres uh, throughout Scripture and what are the different um, principles that are involved when we approach these various genres of, of literature, what, what are the kinds of things that we can expect uh, to, to see and, and to encounter uh, when, we, when we come to them? Um, I want to begin just with a basic textbook definition as we're talking about genre, of what genre means. This is basically just a Webster's Dictionary definition. It's a, a category. When we're talking about genre, it's a category of artistic, musical, or literary composition characterized by a particular style, form, or content. Right? As, um, as Bible readers, right, it's that, um, that last part, literary, that we're most concerned with, and, and the form, it's the different styles that are involved with various uh, genres. And so genre, for us, describes the different forms that we're going to find throughout uh, scripture. Um, as we know, right, when you open up uh, the pages of Scripture, um, not everything is written in the same way. Um, we, we just read one of the Psalms, right, Psalm 2, and not only is it different because you can, you know, see how the editors of the Bible put it together and sort of, you know, let you know this is a, a poetic section, but I mean, actually, when you examine the actual language of Psalms and many of the prophets, the, the way the actual language is structured is ancient Hebrew poetry, right? Um, that's very different from reading, say, a, a, a letter from Paul. Um, certain genres are, are going to include, um, you know, maybe more, more metaphors, Right? More, more hyperbole, more personification, you know, a variety of things that can go into um, poetry that, that maybe you wouldn't uh, expect to find as frequently in a letter. Right? Um, 
So if we, and we have to keep that in mind, because if we, if we read everything in Scripture as if it's written in the exact same way, which is sometimes what is at least implied when people are saying, you know, you need to read the Bible literally. Right? The, the, the idea is, uh, in, in many cases, is like there's not even room for metaphor, right? It, to, to, to recognize a metaphor would almost be like an anathema. It's like you're, you're not even taking Scripture seriously because that, that's not literal Bible interpretation. But, of course, it's not true. Um, you know, if you interpret metaphors literally, you've totally missed the point, right? Um, so we, we, want to, we want to accurately read Scripture as it has been written, and to do so, we have to recognize all of the various forms that it comes to us uh, in. Now, um, we are uh, certainly already just intuitively familiar with the idea of having many genres and approaching writing in different ways. Um, I'll just give you some examples here, right? So you know if you were to read somewhere in the beginning of a book or, or, a, or a, a short story and it says, once upon a time, right? you know this is a fictional story. This is going to be some, some sort of fairy tale, right? There are going to be maybe even, you know, mythological elements in it, you know? There's, a, you know, dragons and, I don't know, flying cows or something. Who knows? The you know, sky's the limit, right? You can come up with all kinds of things. But you know you, the, the, the author is signaling to you he's not writing a nonfiction, you know, history of World War II or anything like that, right? There's a story that's being told. And if... You read that story in a very literal manner as if the details of the story are true in how they're, they're being presented. You, you've totally missed the story. You've missed the point of the story. Right? Uh, you can think also of uh, if you get, you know, in the mail, um, an official-looking letter, and, uh, you know, maybe it says Spectrum on the top or, you know, Chase on the top. You know, if you, if you take that letter and you, you read it as, as a story, in that case, you're, you're going to run into some problems, right? Um, you, you, have a, you have a certain, um, there's an expectation that you know this official letter implies that um, you have a bill you have to pay, right? Um, and uh, you, you have to expect um, that these uh, various genres, when you, when you read them, you have to stay within the boundaries of these, these genres, what they require uh, of you. Um, if, if I get a bill in the mail and I, and I read it like a story um, and I didn't pay my bill and then, you know, Chase Bank calls me and I said, you know, I, I thought this was, this was a story about a guy named Chase and, uh, you know, he's got a customer that he was trying to reach out to. And, you know, I don't know anybody named Chase. So, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was about me. You know, that's not going to fly, right? Because <laughs> you've misunderstood, obviously, uh, the genre of, of what you have received. And um, because you have missed the genre, you have undermined the truth that is being communicated through that, you know, particular letter that you have receive, which is you owe the bank money, right? You, you owe the cable company 
money. Um, it's the same in Scripture, right? If, if I read the law as poetry, which by its very definition, poetry is going to use more, more metaphors, more hyper, hyperbole, um, more personification and, and other literary features. You know, if, I, if I read law as poetry, I might conclude to myself that the command, you shall not steal, is really just a, a metaphor uh, for, for not considering the needs of others. Um, but, you know, if, if, I steal, if I steal something from somebody who they don't really need what I'm stealing from them, well, am I really committing a sin? You know, it's, it's just a metaphor for a, a, a larger principle. Or, on the other hand, if I read poetic language as very literal and miss the various literary devices that are being used, I might come up with all kinds of bizarre theories. In Psalm 18, verse 2, when David says, the Lord is my rock. Perhaps that is taken literally an instruction then that if I go outside and I grab a rock, I can say this here is the Lord. I've missed the metaphor in that case. And, you know, ironically, um, I'm using silly examples here, but, you know, these are things that like we intuitively recognize this isn't literal there's something, this metaphor is communicating something about who God is that is a literal truth. And, and we inherently recognize these things. I was even speaking to the, you know, the kids the other day about when Jesus says, you know, I am the gate or I am the door, right? Is he saying he's a literal door? No, of course not. He's, he's communicating something about himself through that image. We know that, and yet... Um, we, we still, Christians from all kinds of traditions, still miss metaphors. I, th- I think one of the most common ones that, that I've had to deal with recently is the Lord's Supper. You know, Jesus holds up a piece of bread. He's sitting there around his disciples in his, in his body, and he holds up a piece of bread, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. In, in any other occasion, we would recognize this, is a, this represents something, right? He's not identifying his literal body with the bread, because honestly, at that point, you know, we'd have to say Jesus, in some strange way, has three natures, right? He's got a divine nature, he's got a uh, human nature, and he's got a bread nature, right? <laughs> there's there's, a, there's a, an, an obvious metaphor that's being used here, right? He's, he's, uh, he's placing um, an element of symbolism in this, this whole practice. But, again, um, those metaphors are, are often missed. And th- because they're missed, um, theologians have to come up with all kinds of bizarre theories about what the Lord's Supper means, you know, this is one of the things that Luther, Martin Luther, insisted on, right, when he's, when he's reading what, what Jesus says, this is my body, he, he doesn't, he doesn't 
believe that, you know, the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation is correct. It doesn't, you know, sort of un undergo some, you know, metamorphosis and, and change in, into his body, but, but he says it is his body, so there has to be some connection with his actual nature. He's missing the metaphor. Right? So, so we know this, but, you know, sometimes we, we tend to miss those metaphors, and then, again, we can come up with all kinds of um, bizarre theories about a variety of different um, issues because of it. So, uh, you can see, I hope, why understanding the right genre that you are reading can be very important in interpreting um, the meaning of the text correctly. This, of course, does not mean that poetry never uses any literal language or that laws and narratives never use metaphors, but the genre itself does cue you in to the meaning of the language and the prevalence of the various kinds of literary devices you can expect um, before you, you read it. So again, poetry, you can expect, though there is going to be many literal truths there that don't use any sort of literary device, what you should expect when you approach poetry is that it's going to be full of personification, metaphors, symbolism, things like that. So, the Bible is made up of all of these different genres. Um, some of these genres are um, very familiar to us. Uh, for example, uh, the epistles, um, which we will look at in more detail next week. The epistles tend to be a little bit more natural, more familiar to us, right? We, we know what letter writing looks like. It's a, it's a very um, normal process, right? Even if we don't write letters in the same way as people did in, in the first century, right? We just write quick little emails now, but, you know, even there was a time, like, you, you would, there was a proper form of writing a letter, you know, dear so-and-so, and then you write the letter, and then you conclude it with a, you know, final greeting of some sort. We're familiar intuitively with letter writing, we recognize it as a very normal practice where you're, you're communicating, you know, information, um, updates, and, um, you know, you're, 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 you're encouraging others. It's like you're, you're speaking to someone as if you are with them, right, through the letter. So we're, we, we tend to be more familiar with something like reading uh, the epistles of the New Testament. Um, on the other hand, the genre of apocalyptic literature can seem completely foreign to us. Um, it's not every day, right, that we pick up a book or we read an article that is about someone's dream or vision of a man riding on a, uh, on a red horse in the middle of myrtle trees with other red and white horses behind him that all symbolizes angelic creatures who watch and determine the events of history. Right? That's sort of Zechariah chapter 1. Like, we don't read that stuff. It was more common then. This is a common genre at the time, but because we're not around that sort of 
writing anymore, that, that can seem a lot more foreign to us. So some genres can be more familiar, others more foreign. And particularly when it comes to those genres that are more foreign, it, we, we can be a lot more susceptible to committing interpretive errors uh, a, a lot more easily. So we, 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 we certainly do need to be a lot more careful you know, when we're reading um, genres that we're not as familiar with. I wanted to go through some of the more um, common kinds of errors, too, when it comes to um, reading and interpreting different genres. Um, I want to give you three, uh, three common errors to really just kind of keep an eye on, right, um, and, and to avoid. Um, so so here's, here's one. When we understand the genre of a work and, uh, and the result, excuse me, let me rephrase that. When we misunderstand the genre of a work and the result is a skewed interpretation of Scripture, right? So a, a common error in biblical interpretation is is misunderstanding the genre of literature that we're reading and then as a consequence um, misinterpreting scripture. I want to show you an example. Um, This is a a, a biblical example, in fact, Um, from Judges chapter 11. If you turn the uh, uh, Judges chapter 11 and um, we'll read this account of Jephthah and his rash oath making. Judges chapter 11, and uh, we'll look at verses uh, 29 uh, to 40. So Jephthah, he was a a judge. He He was raised up to deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors at the time, who was who was the Ammonites. And uh, here in this passage, he's He's going to make an oath to the Lord. And uh, if, if the Lord gives him victory over the Ammonites, um, he's, he's obligating himself to keep this, this particular oath. So we read, picking up in verse 29, we read this. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Nineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, 
He tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So he makes this rash vow to God. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And the first person that comes out of his house is his daughter. And then he decides that he, he has to keep the vow, and he kills her. Now, the the Lord, of course, in in the passage had given victory to Jephthah. And um, when that happened and when he sees his daughter, he he realizes this rash vow that he has made and he weeps and he laments. But but again, what does he do? He, He eventually sacrifices her. Now, um, Judges, the book of Judges is part of the genre called historical narrative. And in historical narrative, the genre itself does not tell us, oftentimes explicitly, whether an action that it is describing was good or bad. Right? We, we have to have some other indication from the context that tells us what, what sort of um, assessment, what sort of moral judgment we should be making about these particular events. And so, for example, in the book of Judges, the indication that we have is that the author is making a point all throughout the book to show us that Israel, during this time, is on a moral um, downward spiral, right? All throughout the book, that's the whole trajectory. It, it starts out, they, um, they, 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 go, uh, they start carrying out the conquest of the Canaanite peoples, but they fail in that regard. All right? They do not carry God's um, judgment against all of the Canaanites, and so many of the Canaanites continue to live um, with them, and over time they start embracing the ways of the Canaanites, and they become just like them. Every single story in Judges gets worse and worse and worse where you are seeing the constant sin um, and then the deliverance, the merciful deliverance of God of of the Israelites um, when they they do actually repent. But it it, it finally spirals so far out of control that 
you have at the very end of the book of Judges uh, a, a story of, um, um, I guess what it was called, like the, the Gibeonite abomination, which the very way that it is, is told and framed reminds you of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There is this sexual immorality in the same way um, that you found it in Sodom and Gomorrah now taking place among the Gibeonites. Such that when you get to the end of Judges, you know, as a reader, Israel has become just like Sodom. Okay? So all throughout the book, that's the constant message that's being reiterated. Israel is acting more and more wicked every day, every year, every generation. The book of Judges is not commending the actions of the Israelite people to us. It is showing us that even after every deliverance God brings to the people, they continue to spiral out of control. That's the overarching purpose of Judges. So, with that in mind, a right interpretation of this oath from Jephthah is not going to be that his actions were commendable. That the fact that he kept the oath that he made to the Lord was a good decision on his part. We should not be arriving at that moral assessment of his actions. A right interpretation will see Number one, that Jephthah's oath was unnecessary to begin with. He did not need to make an oath to the Lord for the Lord to deliver the people of Israel through him. That is something that the Lord had promised he was going to do. So that's one thing. It's unnecessary that he made this oath. But number two, we are to see that Jephthah's oath is displeasing to God especially when he carries it out. And we're to recognize this because elsewhere, of course, Leviticus 5 speaks directly about how to atone for the sin of making a rash oath. When you have made an oath to God and it was a rash oath, it was a sinful oath, and it has led to sinful um, consequences, sinful results, you don't then compound your sin by murdering someone, especially your own daughter. Right? There are provisions in the law for someone when they have made a rash oath for how they are to confess their sin to the Lord and then offer a sacrifice for atonement. Jephthah didn't do that. He just killed his daughter. So this is another, it, it fits in the trajectory of all of judges of a constant demonstration of how wicked and devoid of the knowledge of the word of God the people of Israel are. Now, if Jephthah had known his Bible, he would have known, you don't have to kill your daughter. Now, recognizing this, 
recognizing what the overarching narrative is communicating to us about the, the rightness or the wrongness of particular actions in a narrative, this is very important because um, believers and unbelievers alike often read episodes like this in the Bible and simply conclude that their presence within the Bible equals a commendation. When in fact it's often the opposite, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like it, it reminds me of the, um, you know, the fact that you find um, patriarchs who are commended in various ways, like Abraham and his faith, right? Um, or David and the fact that he's a man after God's own heart. And, and you read the, the accounts of some of these men, and what do you find? You, they have multiple wives. They're involved in polygamy, okay? And because that is present, um, and, and Scripture records those actions, um, oftentimes people just conclude like, oh, th this must be good and right and true. Right? Christians believe that, you know, you can have multiple wives because look, you know, the patriarchs, they had multiple wives. In a very real sense, it's, it's the same kind of error that the Pharisees make when they're, you know, reading the law about um, the provisions for divorce. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in the law. You can, you can divorce, you know, your wife. You just you give her a certificate of divorce. And what does Jesus say? It was not like that in the beginning. Let not man separate what God has joined together. Right? Moses allowed you to divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Right? All that to say, there are, of course, in the narratives, um, sometimes we are given explicit condemnations of particular actions. Sometimes the narrator is not making a moral judgment either way. He's just laying out the facts of what was present at the time. Sometimes it is a, um, a uh, or he makes a moral, the narrator will make a um, moral assessment uh, of, of some story by how the narrative frames um, the story. And then sometimes you have to read the story, again, within the larger context of things that have happened before. How did God design marriage in the beginning? That basic design in the big beginning should frame your moral assessment of everything else that follows. That's, that's how Jesus sees it. So again, sometimes people, they'll, they'll look at the narratives and, and the, the, the simple, or just because it's there, you know, they will conclude, you know, the, the Bible commends this because it's, it's there. We have to understand what the narratives are doing when, again, as in the case of Jephthah, um, it is describing um, this, this murder that he committed. And, and the narratives uh, teach us, and, and Judges teaches us, that this is an example of a rash vow that instead of being repented of, was carried out. Now, another kind of error is when someone um, maybe mislabels a, a biblical 
genre and therefore undermines the text's truthfulness. Um, this, this really often happens when many of our um, astute Bible experts and scholars in, in the world um, on the History Channel generalize, right, with sweeping statements that the, you know, the Bible is just one big metaphor, right? It's one big myth, right? You'll have some, someone who's using sophistry and lots of fine-sounding language just to, you know, say, it's a, it's a, it's a myth, it's a, it's a metaphor, right? They've, they've sort of labeled the whole thing in this way. And the problem, of course, is that their claims run contrary to what Scripture actually says about itself, right? Um, so, you know, you, you can think, like, if, if, I wrote, <clears throat> if I wrote a book of poems, and, uh, you know, I pass it down to, um, you know, my kids, and then they pass it down to their kids, and so on and so forth, <clears throat> and it said, you know, like, the, uh, the poems of, of Poppy, <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, if, if someone, you know, a hundred years later grabs it and goes, uh, you know, look, look this, is, this is called a, a book of poetry, but uh, no, it, it, it's really a storybook. It's, it's short stories, right? It's a, it's a narrative. It's a, uh, it's a nonfiction account of, of uh, you know, whoever this poppy figure was of, of his life, right? Um, they're disregarding what I myself have said about what I've written and are, by definition, going to misinterpret what I've written. Right? And that's often what, what scholars will do. The scriptures tell us, oftentimes, how they're to be read, what they are, and to give sort of a sweeping statement that, you know, it's all metaphor, it's all myth, misses what the authors themselves are clearly stating. So let me give you an example, a couple examples here. Luke chapter 1. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke says, in the very beginning of his gospel, he says this, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Okay. Now, you may, as a critical scholar, come to the conclusion that the events that Luke records, um, he's wrong about the history, or he's exaggerating about the history, or, or something like that. But you cannot deny the fact that Luke himself is stating very clearly what he's writing. He's writing a historical account. He is acting in the position of a historian. And he's writing this to a man named Theophilus, and he wants Theophilus to have a clear, orderly account of many of Jesus' works and the things that he said, ultimately culminating in the death 
burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is a historical narrative. Now, if I just come to this and say, ah, it's myth, or it's a metaphor for a spiritual life or something like that, what I have to do is take this first, first part of Luke's gospel and just throw it in the trash as if he never wrote it. He's telling us very clearly what he's writing, okay? Now, again, I'm just going to be um, more generous to the, to the critical scholar and say, you know, if, if you read uh, maybe Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian's um, history of the Jews, and, and you read through it, and as a historian, you're, you're looking at it, and you're going, well, he's talking about some events that took place here, but I'm, I'm looking at some other historical evidence here, and I don't really... I don't really agree with his accounting of what took place. I, I will give you more credit for doing that, okay? But you can't just dismiss it and say, this isn't like a historical account, right? Or, or this person is not writing history. Oftentimes, Scripture tells us um, how or, or what it is and how the biblical authors understood it. Um, let me give you another example. Um, oftentimes... People will write off the story of Jonah and the whale, right? As if this, this has to be a myth because nobody can be swallowed by a whale and survive. Um, well, you know, generally speaking, nobody can rise from the dead either, okay? So that's, um, that's just a rejection of miracles as a starting point. I have no problem believing in the resurrection. And if I have no problem believing in the resurrection, I should have no problem believing in the account of Jonah and the whale. But we also know from Scripture itself that Jesus very clearly understood what happened to Jonah as being very literal. Because he says as much in Matthew 12 when he draws a parallel to what happened to Jonah in the whale, in the belly of the whale, and he says the same thing is going to happen to him when, when, he's, when he's crucified and he's buried for three days. Just as Jonah was in the whale for three days, so also will the Son of Man um, um, be, be dead for, for three days. Right? He's drawing a parallel which tells us when Jesus is reading the story of Jonah, he's reading it literally. Right? That happened. That's a historical account. Right? So, um, we're going to run into errors, especially if we disregard um, how the biblical authors themselves tell us um, these various uh, accounts and, and writings and letters and poetry and so on and so forth, if we disregard how they themselves are presenting it uh, to be read. Um, lastly, another kind of error is when principles for interpreting genres are misused to excuse oneself from the demands of Scripture. Right? So when, when principles for interpreting genres are misused to excuse oneself from the demands of Scripture. Um, there are parts of Scripture that are metaphorical, that are exaggerations and, and hyperboles and personifications, things that aren't to be taken in a very um, hyper-wooden, literal sense. For example, 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus says there, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Um, you, don't, you, you don't read that literally. <laughs> He's not commending. Look, if, if he was commending, you know, gouging out your eyes in a literal sense, all the apostles would be blind. Right? <laughs> Every Christian who's ever lived would be blind because nobody would have any eyesight. Right? You recognize this is, this is hyperbole that's driving home a very literal point the seriousness of which you should take sin, and particularly here, um, sexual sin. Um, likewise, Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, we read here, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Is this an absolute statement that applies to every single situation that has ever existed? If a drug addict comes to you begging that you go purchase him some drugs, do you literally obey that command? No. Of course, you recognize what specifically is being addressed there, what the, a real need that someone has for, their, for the, the well-being of their life, right? So there are certain things that people may beg of you for, and, and you are required to reject them. Right? There is some exaggeration, we might say, uh, here, um, or a need to recognize the context of the statements. Um, however, so, so, so there's, there's exaggerations, there's, there's hyperboles. However, um, if we use the presence of the metaphor or the exaggeration as an excuse to disregard the radical call of obedience and discipleship, we are simply turning biblical interpretation into an exercise in how to disobey God with religious justification. Um, you might think, for example, um, you, you know, you might reason this way, and I'm not saying any of, of you would, but just sort of giving a, an example of this, right? The, the, the resurrection is a miracle, um, and you might conclude miracles don't happen, therefore it is a metaphor, therefore there's no obligation to obey Scripture, right? That's sort of the, the, the basic train of thought of Protestant liberalism, right? A uh, rejection of all metaphor, or a rejection of all miracle. Um, so everything has to be a metaphor, and what does that result in? You can make the ethics of Scripture whatever you want them to be. You know, we, we can look at, um, again, we can look at sort of Protestant liberalism, we can look at progressive Christianity, and, and, and we're, we're rightly often appalled at, at the kinds of moral things that they can give approval to. Well, well how do they do that? They, they have a reasoning process where they undermine, in essence, every part of Scripture um, such that it really communicates no binding authoritative truth on us. And so we get to make it say whatever we want it to. It can approve of whatever sins we want it to. So we have to learn, of course, how to identify the genre that we are 
in, and then we have to read a particular portion of Scripture within the constraints of that genre, but not in such a way that we erase what Scripture is calling us to do. So, how do we identify a genre then? Um, we're going to spend a, a lot more time looking at how to do this as we look at each biblical genre in the coming weeks. But here's just some, some practical um, things to do uh, that you could do now. Um, number one, when you read the Bible, um, pay attention to the literary details and certain comments by the author or, or, or the narrator. Um, so, so I'll give you an example of just reading historical narrative. Um, what you want to look out for, what, what is a clear indication that you are reading a narrative and, you know, not poetry or, or anything like that, are, are literary details uh, um, or historical details. For example, you know, the Israelites set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. And then the Lord said to Moses, and then Moses said to Aaron, right? The, the narrator is communicating very clear events that took place. Um, or um, when a narrator comments um, in such a way that his comment is explaining historical changes that have taken place since the time of the original events, the, the original events, and when the narrator is writing about them. So let me give you an example. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 9, and uh, we'll look at verse 9 real quick. 1 Samuel chapter 9, and uh, verse 9. And uh, let, me, let me just start in verse 8. It says, Here the servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Verse 9 this is, a, this is the narrator making a comment. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Right? That, that is clearly a, the, the narrator is living at a later time from these events. And he is giving historical updates and details to his current audience so that they will properly understand the things that were taking place then and the changes that have happened since that time. That's a clear indication of somebody writing history and not myth. They, they want the audience to know the things that have changed throughout history. So the comments like that that you find all throughout um, Scripture are clear indications that you're reading something like, like a historical narrative. Um, also, when you find, um, for example, a stated purpose by the author, um, for example, in, in John chapter 20, John chapter 20, John says explicitly why he is writing 
um, his gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? John is not aiming to give every single historical detail or every single work that Jesus ever committed. He is highlighting certain statements, certain um, uh, sermons, if you will, and certain actions for the purpose of the reader coming to recognize that this Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Christ. Which is one of the reasons why when we go throughout the Gospel of John, you know, it's like, why does he, why does he bring out the, the, the story of Jesus you know, feeding the 5,000 and then it's followed by this, um, this, this, this uh, dialogue between Jesus and the Jews about Jesus being the manna from heaven. Well, he's, he's demonstrating, number one, he's, he's making you remember how the Israelites were fed in the wilderness right? in, in the days of the Exodus and the numbers so that you're seeing this is a rehashing of those events. But now he's explicitly identifying himself as that saving manna, which, which is indicating he is the fulfillment of, of all of these events, right? Just as he says at the end of Luke that all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled in him. John is demonstrating how particular events in Jesus' ministry and his sayings communicate the fact that he has fulfilled everything from the Old Testament. Right? And so that, that's why he's including certain details and leaving out others real quick um, identifying poetry sometimes you find poetry throughout narratives and, and then of course sometimes you find it very clearly in you know like a book of psalms and um, certainly as you're reading through scripture the, the editors will very helpfully you know show you when you're reading um, poetry when you're reading narrative by how they um, write out the actual text but you know, if you didn't have that, one of the defining marks of Hebrew poetry is the presence of parallelism, what's called parallelism. We'll, we'll look at this in more detail, but the, the basic gist of it is that one statement on one line, you, you have an author who will make a statement, and then the next line will either further define that first statement or it will be a contrast with that um, first statement or a, um, a progression, right? But you have like the, you know, why in the book of Psalms, right? You're, you're reading through it and it's like you, the way you have it structured is sort of like a, a jagged, you know, you've got these parallel lines. Well, it's because that's the feature of Hebrew poetry is the presence of parallelism, the restatement of, in essence, the, the, the same thing over and over again to drive home the point, um, to, to instill it within your, your memory. Right? 
Um, so poetry, when, you're, when, you, when you come across some sort of parallelism, it is a clear indication that you are reading poetry, which again, as a reader, then signals to you that you should be ready to be finding many metaphors and um, you know, many pr you know, presence of personification and things like that. And then um, lastly, and what we'll end with this is, is just, um, of course, this is just a, a practical matters, just having a, picking up a good study Bible or a commentary or e even a book on, on biblical interpretation. Um, there is no shame, right, in using commentaries. Um, the um, the uh, famed um, George Whitfield um, was, was known to have, when, when he was sailing over from England to America, he, he would read through all of Matthew Henry's commentaries, right, in preparation for his, his preaching when he got to, to America. So commentaries themselves can be very helpful where you know, biblical scholars are pointing out um, the different features that we find in scripture um, with respect to those genres. So, like I said, we're going to look at this in, in more detail and, and just get into some of those particular genres. We'll start with epistles, and then um, we'll do narrative and, and poetry and apocalyptic. And then um, uh, eventually we'll get to typology, which is throughout all of those genres. Right? And uh, again, hopefully um, this will be such that when you're, you're reading scripture and you have these things in mind, it'll help you uh, interpret it um, more, more accurately. So let me, uh, let me close with a word of prayer, and then we'll close with the doxology. Well, Father, again, we, we thank you for your word. There are many riches within it, and it speaks to us in a variety of ways, even as uh, the author of Hebrews says that you, you spoke to us many times and in many ways. And um, sometimes we, we, we learn best through um, stories, through narratives, and, and other times we um, profit from the rich imagery that is found throughout a, a book like uh, the book of Psalms. And so um, we do pray that as we read and study scripture, um, again, that you would give us uh, clear minds and um, that you would help us to faithfully understand your word so that as we have understood its original meaning from that point, we can then draw out proper application for our own lives now. And uh, again, so we ask that you would be with us as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name.